Hi there. Thank you for choosing to listen to this sermon. We pray that God would use this as an added resource to benefit you in conjunction with you belonging to a local church near you. This sermon was preached at Central Baptist Church, Pretoria. 130 years of believers loving God, caring for one another, and impacting the world. Well, please turn me with me uh, to Second Corinthians, and chapter eight. And there, there are there are two chapters here that speak to the issue of generosity. And last week we started uh, considering the passage in chapter eight, down to verse 15. So this morning, from verse 16 onwards through to the end of chapter nine. To follow with me in your Bible, not only as we read, but also as we move through this, the message this morning as well. So Paul writes, he says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance, joy, and their extreme poverty have overwhelmed in a wealth of generosity on their part. So I'm reading the first two verses, now going down to verse 16. But thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. For he has not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. With him we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us. For the glory of God himself and to show our goodwill. We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. And with them we are sending our brother, whom we have uh, often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. Now, it is superfluous for me to write to you about this ministry for the saints. For I know, I know your readiness of which I boast about to the people of Macedonia. Saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I'm sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready, as I said, as I said you would. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift. The gift you have promised, so that it may be ready as a willing gift and not as an exaction. The point is this: whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly; whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, He has distributed freely, He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food 
will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and the increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous, in every way which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. So just so far, the reading of his word. Long passage, and we are going to seek to try and understand this passage and apply it in our own context here at Central. Dear Lord, I do pray that as we turn to the explanation and preaching of this word, Lord, that your word would go forth, that you would teach, that you would, uh, Lord, urge us on in our own growth and walk with you, our partnership together in the gospel and to the glory of your name. And so, Lord, may the words of my mouth be acceptable in your sight, and Lord, the reception of this word in our hearts, we pray to the glory of your name. Amen. So recently, my one daughter, my eldest daughter, Jamie, recommended I watch a uh, a Netflix series. Uh, the series was called How to Become a Cult Leader. Okay, I don't want to become a cult leader. She doesn't want me to become a cult leader, but uh, definitely some lessons that one could learn from that particular series. The common thread as I watch, I think there were six different episodes, the common thread in each of these cult movements was the excessive amount of money, lots and lots of money, that ends up in the cult leader's pocket. Becomes excessively and horribly rich. It surprised me because many of those who had exited the cult many years later confessed that they had believed they would never get caught up in a cult. And yet, as I watched these different episodes, many naive men and women were manipulated. They were convinced to willingly empty their pockets under the influence of this leader. Many people falling over each other, literally falling over each other to give their hard-earned cash to the so-called cause. The cause is nothing more than a smokescreen for the cult leader to be stashing the money, to be stashing the goods that he's receiving, away for himself to live in the lap of luxury. Now sadly, I've used that introduction this morning because not only can that happen, it does happen in the context of a local church. Very sadly, many of these cults started out with those who were leaders and pastors in even evangelical local churches. And so right at the beginning, a disclaimer, and please hold us accountable to this. At Central Baptist Church, we will not embark on any efforts of exploitation. Won't do that. 
We won't be involved in extortion or manipulation to extract money from individual people for so-called cause. Our motivation, and I touched on this last week, and at the core of this motivation is the passage that comes to us in the midst of this, these two chapters. Uh, chapter 8 and verse 9, that which moves us, that which motivates us in generosity, in giving, is simply that we are beneficiaries of the redeeming work of Christ. And I'll quote the passage. This has to be, this must be at, at the center of what we do in, in giving, in, in our help of those who are poor or even in the giving of the church. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. There's the motivation. It's the gospel. It's what Jesus has achieved in redemption. And so Paul makes it absolutely clear that there is no need to drive the Corinthians or the Centralites or any other believer with a whip or a stick regarding generosity. Every believer, every true believer, ought to be moved by that which they've received from God himself as a grace gift. And as a result of that, can do nothing other than pursue what I used last week, or the words I used last week, to pursue Christ-likeness. When you become a believer, the sponge is no longer empty. It's full of grace, and to use the analogy of water, and it spills out, it spills over, it leaks. And so in this uh, remaining portion that this discussion unfolds in Paul now includes a God-given principle that we need to understand as believers. And then he goes on to give some practical advice to encourage them and us in this ministry to the saints, this act of generosity in kindness. But I want to begin, and, and this is really where our passage starts out, asking a question. Who should be involved in the handling of the church finances? The question, have you ever thought about that? Who should, who should be appointed? Who should be apportioned this kind of responsibility? Well, a story. My uh, father-in-law, uh, Carol's dad, also uh, was a pastor. And uh, down through the years, telling us many stories and experiences that they had in ministry. He tells one story that as a young pastor, he was called to a church actually in what was then Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe, and he arrived at this new congregation, and as was his practice, he asked the treasurer at the monthly executive meeting for a finance report. Well, no written report was available, uh, the treasurer gave a verbal report. This is what he said. This is what my father-in-law would repeat to us down through the years. So much has come in during the month. So much has been expended during the month. And there's so much money in the bank. Well, this went on. You're a new pastor. You're quiet. You kind of receive what you're told. Uh, went on month after month until one day he received a phone call from the local bank manager. 
The bank manager called to say that the church was in default with the bond on the church manse. Well, my father-in-law immediately went to the bank to discover that there in fact had been no activity on the church account for months. No payments had been made on the mortgage. When the treasurer was confronted, he admitted he had been using the money that was coming in through the offering bags to bet on the horses. But he said, hoping for a big win to pay back the money. Does that sound familiar? Can you see then, looking at this passage, why the Apostle Paul meticulously identifies the men who will be involved in the handling of this gift that will be carried from the Corinthian church to the church at Jerusalem. Verse 16, Paul thanks God who put into the heart of Titus. So there's one of them in Titus, the same earnest care he has for him. Titus is Paul's true son in the faith. We know that if we write or we read the letter to Titus in chapter 1 verse 4. He was a trustworthy believer who did not serve for any personal advantage and he never sought to exploit people. You can read that in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 18. He had for some time and continued to be one of Paul's regular companions, a partner and fellow worker. Now here's my point. He was no fly by night. He didn't just enter into the scene and suddenly uh, have the responsibility of taking management of the church funds. There's a second person, Paul links Titus with an unknown Christian who would accompany him. You can read that in verse 18 and 19. He was a person, I see, with a credible reputation. He was well known, we are told, in all the churches for preaching the gospel. Verse 19, not only that, he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. Do you see the, do you see the emphasis of this message Credible, credible person. We take this course so that no one should blame us. There should be no fingers pointed. For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. So the question, who then? Very practically, Central Baptist Church, two campuses, three services, offerings taken, EFTs paid month by month. Who should be involved in handling the finances of the church? Well, it's certainly not just anybody, not anybody who sticks up their hand and volunteers, definitely not. It's a person who is known to be trustworthy. It's a person who has a credible reputation. It is a person not looking to grease his or her own palm. It is a person who clearly seeks to what done, what is done is done to the glory of God. And so I've tried to sum that up in a single sentence, and this is what I came up with. As we consider the appointment of people responsible for finances in any particular area in the church, it is a person, it is people who have a God-honoring, impeccable integrity. 
Now I want to add a second comment. And this should never be done alone. And I say that because any one of us still struggles with the remaining marks of sin and given a particular situation of need, like the treasurer up at that particular church, may feel justified to dip, as it were, our fingers in the till. Another story. I remember the story. I was not in the ministry. I was still involved at this church. I was a deacon. And we noticed a sudden drop in the giving. Now, there's a pattern of giving because members are committed and they give regularly. And, and by and large, the giving is much the same month by month. This was before there were any kinds of EFTs or QR codes and snap scan and so on. So I'm talking about the 80s. It didn't make sense that this was happening in the church. So one Sunday evening, while the deacons were counting the offering, one of the deacons noticed the check that he had put in in the morning service was missing. They counted after the evening service. And so as they thought about it, they guessed that between the morning service and the evening service, the offering bags were kept in a walk-in safe. And there would be men and women who would come in early to remove sound equipment from the walk-in safe to set up for the evening service. And so the only access to that money was in that short period. And so they assumed, they never ever found out who it was, they assumed that somebody, while doing that particular task, was taking cash. But they made a mistake. They took a check, and it was missed. Well, the deacons made a decision. They changed the place of safekeeping. And guess what? The giving was back on track. And so I want to assure you here at Central that we take seriously the stewardship of the monies given to the church and through the church. We scrutinize monthly financial reports. We hold people accountable for the monies that they spend or authorize to be spent. We are careful about who is involved in money. Also, I want to say today that none of the pastors, there's not one of our pastors, including me, who has access to bank accounts and bank statements. It's not our territory. We don't get involved in that. We don't look at that. And in the event of any expenditure required outside of the budget, we have a finance committee who gives approval. Who should be involved in the finances of the church? Men and women of integrity. Which leads me on to a second question. Should we repeatedly talk about money? Well, if we ever look at our passage, you'll notice that Paul has already mentioned in chapter 8 verse 11, their readiness, the Corinthians' readiness to give and now again in chapter 9, verse 2, he repeats, for I know your readiness. He's already reported their willingness to the people of Macedonia, told them that, and now informs them to, 
informs them to avoid them being humiliated. He's sending the brothers, chapter 9, verse 3, so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready, as I said you would be. There's a repeating, a reminding. Chapter 9, verse, verse 5, Paul feels it necessary to send the brothers ahead to arrange in advance the gift that they had promised. And yet in chapter 9, verse 1, he says, he acknowledges it's superfluous to write about the ministry for the saints. So what's going on over here? They know they ought to give. They know that they have a desire to give. But they need to be reminded, they need to be urged on their willingness to be generous. Why? Why, why do we need to be reminded in generosity and giving? What Matthew Henry really found this statement so uh, sobering. The duty of ministering to the saints, that's the giving, that's the generosity to those in need. Let me read that again. The duty of ministering to the saints is so plain that there would seem no need to exhort Christians to it. Why should we be able to, or should we need to tell people? Then he goes on. Yet... Self-love contends so powerfully against the love of Christ. See the tension that's going on. Self-love, the love of Christ, that it is often necessary to stir up their minds by way of remembrance. I put that in ordinary plain English. We are all so easily and repeatedly tempted to be sucked back into be consumed with ourselves and stinginess. That's the nature of people. It can happen that we become numb and blind and insensitive to the love of Christ and the generosity that ought to flow from that. And so, yes, should we repeatedly remind each other in the matter of generosity? We do. But, there's always a but, importantly to use Paul's words in chapter 9, verse 5, to do so as a willing gift, not as an exaction. Exploiting well-meaning people is not what we ought to do or should do, and I hope we do not do it at this church. We should not engage in practices of extortion by emotional manipulation or lying to raise money in the church. Now, some people do that. They tell half-truths. They don't expose the full story. Sometimes we do it in the church, and, and I hope we don't do it. Sometimes missionaries do it. And, and, and it's all to, to stir up generosity and to take money from people. We, that's abominable. It's despicable. And it's dishonoring to the Lord. Number three, how should we urge one another God's way? I've used that word God's way there because there is a worldly way of doing things. To give money away to others in need or even giving money to the church may seem to be somewhat, to the unspiritual mind, throwing money down the drain. Why would you give 10% or 15% or 5% of your income to the church? Some people would say. That's the world's principle. Because the world's principle is to make sure I get everything I want, that my needs are served and met, to make sure that every spare cent is stashed away, cents turn into rands, and rands turn into 
thousands and millions. God's principle is different. Have a look at verse 6. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. And so we need to understand in terms of the principle involved here, giving is sowing. When we give following God's principle, it is a seed sown from which a valuable increase can be expected. Now, Paul uses a familiar analogy from farming. I said to the congregation earlier at the hill this morning, the only thing I ever planted was tomatoes. And I don't even think I was successful in growing those. But I know this. One tomato seed grown into a tomato plant produces multiple tomatoes with thousand seeds. That's the point that Paul is making. It's a repeated principle in the book of Proverbs. Chapter 11, verse 24. One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and the one who waters will himself be watered. Proverbs 22, verse 9. Whoever has a bountiful eye will be blessed, for he shares his bread with the poor. Now, folks, I need to clarify, I'm not promoting a prosperity gospel. I think you know me well enough. I'm not suggesting that at all. I am holding up God's way as being different to the tight-fistedness of the person consumed with self. And the valuable increase is not guaranteed cash in the pocket. You may hear that in some churches. This will make you rich if, if you give to the church, if you give to the pastor. That's rubbish. It's rubbish. The increase may be God blessing your business or your career or your particular endeavor. It may be other things. It might just give you the delight of giving. And if you, if you are a giver, if you have given, you will know that kind of delight. Wonderful to see somebody in need being provided for. And so the vulnerable increase is not guaranteed cash in your pocket. It's not a guaranteed Rolex watch on your arm. It just could be the joy in your heart of being part of helping a person or need. It could be the contentment that comes when you understand that material things don't own you. It could be a means of simply you learning and experiencing the blessing of trusting God for all that he gives. Now with giving as a, and giving as sowing as a principle, there are some practical facts that follow. A couple of them I'm going to mention. As we move on in the passage in verse 7, we see that giving is personal. Each one, each one must give as he or she has decided in his or her heart. Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Paul is telling us here that rather than impulsive giving, sort of just on the spur of the moment, having some kind of knee-jerk reaction, each one of us must make a considered decision as to what and how and to whom we will give. Your generosity ought to be under God, prayerfully done, of course, with the scriptures in your hand, 
applying your mind and landing on a plan. Find out about the organizations before you commit to them. Find out about the individuals that are asking and appealing for support before you decide to make a commitment. Find out in the context of our church if you're happy with the systems of management and integrity. Have a line item on your budget. And that makes sense. Every month you've got to pay your water and lights, you've got to pay this and this insurance and, and your giving whether it be to the church or to missionaries you support or to particular people in need. Paul is making the point that due thought to your circumstances, you can't give what you don't have. The circumstances of those who are around you and of course the commitments to the local church, you consider those that lead to wise giving decisions. And then executing. And in execution, not doing it grudgingly or reluctantly with a heavy heart, but cheerfully because God loves a cheerful giver. I remember uh, when I was a student at college, Baptist College, I studied a second time in my life when I was married. My late 20s, 29, I already had responsibilities of a home and resigned from my job. And so for four years, I didn't have employment. I did some part-time work teaching at an engineering college on a Saturday morning to make some money. I served as a student pastor at various churches doing youth ministry, uh, earning what they called a stipend. I was telling my daughter the other day, our stipend when I finished at college was 400 rand a month. Um, The point being, the four years at college were difficult years, difficult years financially speaking. But I learned a lesson in those years taught to us by the then principal Rex Matthew. He said to us as students, when God provides for you through a person, it's not that person. That person is a channel. And there's a great lesson in that. None of us is the provider. We're simply channels of blessing. We're instruments And so the recipient of need or the recipient of a gift, thank God you are the giver. We're instruments in God's hands. Which leads me to the next practical point that I observe here is that giving is a means of spiritual growth and usefulness. Verse verse 8, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. So God blesses us to do good things. He provides abundantly. God is the, the, the all-sufficient one. He provides for our spiritual needs. He provides our temporal needs. Uh, praying, Lord, uh, give me today my daily bread. And so to be content with what I have and then to do the good he wants me to do. You know what I discovered? I was standing around... Uh, we had this fire on a Friday night at, at the hill called Adults Ablaze, and I was listening to some of the conversations that were going on. And there were some businessmen, there are some businessmen in our church who are Gideons. I don't know if you know what Gideons do. They distribute Bibles. They pay for the Bibles. They use their own time. They use their own money to get to the places to distribute these Bibles. And 
they do it and they come back and they're absolutely delighted to be able to share in the blessing that God has given them in distributing and sowing the seed of the word in the lives of people. But the thing that I noticed among some of these men is that this has been a step forward in their spiritual growth and maturity. Their trusting of God, their delight in God, and them seeing themselves in usefulness in the work of God in the kingdom. Paul does make a comment, and much can be said about this verse, but I'm going to just make a single comment. He goes on, he says in verse 9, as it is written, he, that is God, has distributed freely. It's given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. And so there's a connection here. I believe something we need to take as a challenge, the picture of sowing and harvesting by quoting Psalm 112, generous giving is very closely connected to practical righteousness. Number four, giving produces gratitude to God. Verse 11, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of the service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgiving to God. So there's a double barrel benefit. The need is met and abundant thanksgiving is directed to God. Which leads me to my final point. Giving glorifies God. I separated these points because I think this is so important. Because there is a subtlety that must be identified because any one of us, each one of us could be tempted to want the applause. That's so. Generosity ought to be carried out in such a way that the receiver understands and the giver understands God has provided, God has provided. Verse 13, by the approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Gospel connectedness with giving. A sincere confession of faith. It comes in the context. Giving must come in the context of humility so that we can deflect this temptation and this, this, this uh, maybe even an internal desire that we want attention for ourselves. No, it's humility in the context of gospel applied, not pressing for plaques and accolades and ego stroking. Everything we have, everything we give, everything we receive from God, to God be the glory. A confession of the gospel of Christ is not just acknowledging and believing doctrinal truth that Jesus accomplished atoning work on the cross, that he came and lived a life and died a death and, and was raised and ascended into heaven. That's not, that's not a sincere confession. I'll tell you what a sincere confession. It's that, 
It's also a confession from those who know themselves to be the foremost among sinners. Constantly turning from sin, looking to Jesus. Again, Matthew Henry says, True Christianity is a subjection to the gospel, a yielding of ourselves to the commanding influence. We live in a day in our particular era where so easily our particular communities as Baptists where our emphasis is on doctrinal truth. And it ought to be. But it ought to be applied as well. And as much as those who are generous to the poor, yes, Paul affirms, he goes on to show that poor people are not just on the take, but they give back. Verse 14, they long for you. They pray for you because of the surpassing grace upon you. Well, the conclusion and this message, I'm rushing it. Much more could be said. But the conclusion of this discussion regarding generosity flows from lives touched by the grace of God. Head and heart. It ends with a doxology. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. What is that gift? Is it money in your pocket? Is it a car in the driveway? Is it food in your stomach? No. He, Jesus, is the indescribable gift. He is the gift to this world lost in sin. A gift we sinners who are recipients of grace, we we believers, ought to respond in overwhelming gratitude and thankfulness to God. And so my final question this morning as I close, and we're going to move on. Job is going to lead us at the communion table. Are your giving patterns are my giving patterns intertwined with Jesus and his abundant grace to you please Lord grow us challenge us and may we Lord be like those leaking sponges experienced having experienced the abundance of of your infinite grace and kindness to us, overflowing to those, Lord, in need, whether it be financial need, whether it be spiritual need, a willingness to share that which you have so kindly given to us. Even as we turn to you, as we partake of these elements this morning, help us, not only in our heads, but in our hearts, to understand and experience the blessedness of grace. Amen. Thank you for listening to the sermon. Find out more about Central Baptist Church at www.central.org.za.